I'm sure you all know the experience uh, in various capacities and in different ways of sweet relief. You know that feeling of just, ah, relief. When I think of sweet relief, I think of hours of playing pond hockey and your feet are just aching. And then you take off your skates and you slip them into your vintage Sorel boots and just that, oh, that, like you're walking on a cloud. You know that feeling? Maybe it's just me. That's just like such a sweet relief. It's worth playing, going skating for hours just to put winter boots on after. I don't know. That's just such a good feeling. Or maybe you think of sweet relief. You're baking uh, out in the, well, you're not literally baking. You are personally baking out on the hottest summer day. You're just cooking outside. And for the outdoorsy people, it's just that refreshing dive into a cold Muskoka lake. And for the non-outdoorsy people, it's that step into your air-conditioned home. Sweet relief, right? Or maybe a more stressful example is you're running really late to a really important meeting. Or maybe even more, you're running late to a flight that you need to catch. You know the gate is closing and you make it just in time for the flight attendant to let you in. Ah, sweet relief. But there are times I'm sure you can think of in your own life and certainly ones that you could think of in the lives of others where that sweet relief is so much more than merely comfort or even a a quick moment of peace through the turmoil. It's where it is a life and death situation where you find life, where you find safety. Rather than relief, you find rescue. What it means to be saved. And so you might think of very literal rescue scenarios. Maybe you've been in one of these scenarios before. I don't know. Uh, But I think of, when I was thinking of this passage, I was thinking of, uh, you know, the Thai soccer team. Remember a few years ago that was trapped in a flooded cave. Absolutely no hope of escape apart from someone coming to rescue them. Imagine that feeling of deliverance when the divers who were in that cave popped their head up for the first time for that soccer team that was trapped in this cave. Imagine being under an impossible, crushing financial debt, only to find out that your long-lost uncle had died and left you his fortune, and it was enough to cover the entire debt that was hovering over you. Or imagine, and I don't want to cause anxiety here, but imagine being trapped underwater. You've been down there for far too long. You've been clawing to the surface, but you're running out of options. You know things are closing in. It's, it's, you're reaching the end. But imagine that feeling of the hand of a rescuer grabbing your wrist and that first gulp of fresh air when you come to the surface. Each of these, relief, rescue, or deliverance, comes not from a starting place of comfort, but a place of trial. I think that's an important thing that we can think about as we think about sweet relief and as we think about deliverance. The comfort of those soft boots are sweet because... You've been in a stiff skate for hours. Getting to your flight on time is only sweet because you almost didn't make it. Rescue is needed because you were trapped. And that breath of fresh air, although it is always sweet, and we've been breathing all morning here, but we haven't likely thought about how sweet it is that we can breathe oxygen. It's made extra sweet when our body is starved of that much-needed oxygen. And so it's from these places of trial, uh, these places of need, and these places of desperation that we can find relief, and that that relief then feels so much more than just uh, something we're owed. It becomes something sweet, something precious. And so as we get into Psalm 18 this morning, Psalm 18, we are told in the little introduction right away, that is written by David. Now, King David is a major character throughout the Bible. Uh, if you've spent any time in the Bible, you've likely, uh, likely bumped into King David before. And he it was a king. He had some highs in his life, but he also had many, many lows. He had some hills. He had some valleys. You can think of even when God had appointed him as king, but the former king, Saul, wanted to be king. And so Saul thought, if I get rid of this David character, you know, then maybe I could stay as king. And so he was trying to kill David. And David, instead of retaliating or acting against him, knowing he was the rightful king, he, he ran. Right? In a sense, he, he turned the other cheek. Biblical principle, right? But that was a trial. He had someone wanting to kill him, the former king. Right? 
I'm sure you've encountered trials in your life, but I, I don't imagine many of us have had the king of a nation trying to kill us. But that wasn't the end of David's trials. He's, he had his own son trying to orchestrate a coup to, to take over the throne, to take out his own father. Imagine the tension there. You can read back through the first couple of Psalms. Psalm 3 speaks specifically to this revolt from Absalom where, where David is encountering serious trial. We see too in David's life, he struggled with sin in major ways and he faced serious consequences for that sin. He was slandered. He was resisted. He was challenged. He was attacked in every possible way. But it is through the trials, through the tribulations, that in David's life where that deliverance that he experienced, the rescuing from God, the care and love that he received became even sweeter, even more precious. He knew sweet relief. He knew what it meant to be rescued. He knew what it meant to be delivered. And so that is what Psalm 18 is about. It is a song of praise and thanksgiving. It is a song of deliverance. That's how we could summarize the category of the song. It is a song of deliverance. In this psalm, we find almost the identical version of it in 2 Samuel chapter 22. It's another big chapter, and it goes through this exact psalm with only just a few word changes. But this is David's song that he sings to God, his shield, his rock, his deliverer, his refuge. And we'll see and spend time this morning looking at through this psalm, David looks both backward and to his present circumstances and forward as he works through this psalm. We see allusions throughout of past events where God has delivered and provided for not only David, but all of God's people. And we find allusions to a future hope, a hope that we know to be realized perfectly in Jesus Christ. The truth of Psalm 18 that we can know today is that those who take refuge in Christ find not only sweet relief, they find refuge. They find rescue. They find deliverance. Now, Psalm 18 is a long psalm. It is the fourth longest psalm in the whole book of Psalms. Uh, it also, another interesting fact, it has the second longest superscription. If you look in your Bibles, there's a little introduction to the psalm. And uh, this is the second longest one in the whole book of Psalms. And so, but apart from being long, it's, it's in a sense a typical psalm. It uses a lot of common language that we would see throughout the book of the Psalms. And what we see in this psalm, like we do in uh, the whole Psalter, is how God is typically addressed. We see th the Lord written in all caps. And we know that whenever we see that, whenever we encounter that in our own Bible reading, whenever we encounter that uh, in Sunday mornings, that where it says the Lord in all caps, the original author is using God's personal covenant name, the name Yahweh. And with that name, you can hear by the nature that if it's his personal covenant name, comes with it so much meaning. All of God's promises, all of God's promises that are made and all of God's promises that are kept. And so as we read through, I will, I don't get it right every time because in my Bible it doesn't say Yahweh. It just says the Lord in all caps. But I'll be likely reading the name Yahweh when we get to those sections. Uh, but it's not wrong to do either way. But I do think it's a helpful thing as we work through this passage to use what the original authors included. Now, Psalm 18 is long, and there is more in it than we could ever encounter and ever uh, soak in and ever plumb the depths of on a Sunday morning. But not just because of its length. It is meaty in its content. Now, it doesn't mean it's complicated. It's just dense with rich, rich beauty, rich, rich meaning. But the central message of the psalm is clear. We can see almost a summary verse somewhere near the middle in Psalm 18, verses 30. David writes this, This God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. David knew and proclaimed this truth, that Yahweh was his shield. He both was, again, attesting to his own life as well as the lives of God's people. But what I encourage you with this morning, as we encounter Psalm 18, we can know that we can sing this same song of deliverance because of what Jesus has done for us. 
It is through Christ that God is a shield to all those who would take refuge in him. And so as we work through Psalm 18, I want you to keep that thought in your mind, specifically verse 30, and that will be our big idea for us this morning. Kids, you can put that in your little notebooks uh, where it says main idea uh, or main theme, the main thing. What's the point of Psalm 18? Yahweh is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Yahweh is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And so throughout Psalm 18, we'll see how Yahweh is a God who doesn't stay at a distance. He hears and he responds. Now, it is always helpful to have a Bible in front of you, uh, but especially on these long ones, it's easy for us to get lost because we'll be dropping down in a few different places. And so I would encourage you to take out your Bibles if you haven't already and turn to Psalm 18. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love to give you a Bible to keep, if you can find one on a table over there, you can go grab one at, at any time throughout the service. And uh, if you just forgot your Bible or you didn't, or don't normally bring it, if you want to go grab one to borrow for the morning, that is exactly what they're there for. They serve no good sitting on that table. Uh, they serve use sitting on your lap. And so if you want to grab a Bible, you can do that. Uh, but we will be working through this whole psalm, even though it is long. And uh, if you are new to the Bible... Uh, Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible, and it's found pretty close to the middle. So if you want to just split your Bible in half, leaning slightly towards the front cover, that's how you'll find uh, the book of Psalms, or this collection of songs and prayers for God's people, uh, commonly known as the Psalter. And uh, Psalms starts with a P, if you're looking at the table of contents and you're having trouble finding it, P-S-A-L-M. And our Bibles are organized with chapters and verses. And so if, again, you're not familiar with the Bible, it uses chapters and verses. The chapters are the big numbers that you'll see, and then the verses are the small numbers. And so we'll be in Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 18, so big number 18, and then small numbers, buckle up, ready, 1 to 50, 50 verses. Uh, and we'll try to get you out of here by dinner time. No, by lunchtime. We'll, uh, we'll get through it. So... Once you've found Psalm 18, I know it's long, but if you are able, would you stand with me as I read God's holy and true word? And when I finish reading, would you say with me, thanks be to God for his holy and true word for us today. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of Yahweh who addressed the words of this song to Yahweh on the day when Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then... The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coal, coals of fire broke through his clouds. Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. They were too mighty for me. 
They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in your sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. And with the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people. But the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp, O Yahweh my God, lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but Yahweh? Who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through but that, so that they were not able to rise, they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to, you, to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like a mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Yahweh, among the nations and sing your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. And so right away, the stage is set in Psalm 18 for resting in confidence with the God who hears. And that will be our first point. Yahweh hears your cry for help. Yahweh hears your cry for help. So again, if we look at that superscription, that section, the introduction to this song at the beginning, we get a little bit of context, and we see not an exact scenario in David's life where he's referencing one scene specifically. What he's talking about here is he's saying all those times, the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And then we see once that context is set, that David launches in, in verse 1, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. That sets the stage for the entire rest of the psalm. And we see that as, as we look at our big idea, our main point. That it is God who saves. It is God who is a refuge. Jim Hamilton, in his commentary on Psalm 18, writes this. Psalm 18 opens with David's love for and reliance on Yahweh and closes with Yahweh's deliverance of and love for David. It's a bookend, that, that kind of an Oreo cookie of Psalm 18 that, that sandwiches all that comes in the middle about God's love, about David's need, about David's love, and about God's provision and deliverance. And we'll get to the closing bit in a little bit. Don't worry, that wasn't the whole uh, sermon. But we see that that's how he starts and that's how he ends. 
There's like an answer to the question. There's a response. And we look at the use of metaphor in verse 2. It says, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now these metaphors make sense to us. I'm not pretending that they're completely foreign, but I do think they're probably a little bit more foreign to us. They're, they're more metaphorical to us than they would be to an ancient Near East audience that would listen to this psalm for the first time. They would know the need of, of having an attacker coming and the, the ability to, to be hidden in the cleft of a rock, maybe from, from whatever is assaulting them, weather or a person. Uh, they know the, the meaning of a, the fortress, the stronghold that they could bunker down in. Again, a shield we talked about as we worked through Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, that to be left without a shield was to left, be left without any defense and a refuge, a place of safety and security. So David's not lying when he's saying in verse 1, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Now, it would be true for him to say, I love you, God, and I draw strength from you. That, that would be a true statement, but that's not what David's saying here. He's saying, I love you, and you are my strength. That's an important difference. Again, it's not wrong to pray the first, but he's saying, I don't save myself. The rock that I hide in does, and my rock is Yahweh. The fortress and stronghold that I, I, I barricade myself into saves me, not myself, and my fortress and stronghold is Yahweh. The shield that I, I hide behind protects me. And that shield is Yahweh. He's saying, God, you are my only hope. And this spurs David on to praise where he says in verse 3, I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from all my enemies. And just in case we want to be cynical and say again, oh yeah, of course he's crying out to God. He's been delivered. He knows how good life is. He's the king, right? He's got a good life. He doesn't know my struggle. He doesn't know my pain. He doesn't know what I'm going through. Well, look at verses 4 and 5. It's pretty dark. It says, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, or the realm of the dead, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. He's distressed. He says that right after. In my distress, I called to Yahweh. Right? David is not ignorant to trial. And importantly, he doesn't stop with trial. He is aware of the circumstances, the challenges that he has gone through in his life. The circumstances that encompass, assail, entangle, and confront. But he cries out to God, and God hears him. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Do you resonate with verses 4 and 5? Do you know, even this morning, the feeling of having the world closing in on you, of being trapped, entangled, confronted, drowning in the circumstances and trials of this life, you feel the weight of your sin. You feel the weight of assault on every side. You feel the weight of whatever burdens you're carrying. Friend, the Bible is not silent on these kinds of emotions. The Bible is not silent on these kinds of experiences. Even in a song of praise and thanksgiving, there is a gut-wrenching honesty here. But the lesson here is not let the struggles and trials of life shape the way that we look at God and the world around us. That's not what Psalm 18 is saying and teaching us. That can be our default reaction. We look at the circumstances and we just say, why? What's going on? The entire psalm of our life might just be verses 4 and 5. We just dwell in, in the trials of this life. And if we, we grieve under those things as if we have no hope. But David shows us a biblical way of encountering these trials that does the exact opposite. What David demonstrates here is that we shouldn't allow our circumstances to determine our faith in God's goodness. 
but we need to instead let our faith in God's goodness determine our approach to our circumstances. Okay, now there's a lot of words there. I'm going to say that again. Don't allow your circumstances to determine your faith in God's goodness. Let your faith in God's goodness determine your approach to your circumstances. Cry out to God in your distress and trust that he hears you. Your cry reaches his ears. Of course, this isn't where this passage ends, but it, there's enough hope there for us this morning that, that God hears our cries of desperation. And so to bridge that metaphor that we started with, the idea of being rescued, right? imagine you're trapped under a pile of rubble and you've been there for I don't know how long and you've given up hope. You just know I'm here until the end. I'm just trapped. Imagine how good it would be to hear, we're coming for you. We hear you. We know where you are. With the fire, fire department, sometimes we would go to calls where someone had fallen and they couldn't get up. They were trapped, uh, not by things around them. They were just, they had fallen. They were unable to move. We went to one call one time of a man who had fallen and he was laying in his house for days and he had no one coming around and he thought, I'm just gonna die here. I'm just trapped alone and I gotta just wait this out. But all of a sudden this salesman came to the door and was knocking on the door and he cried out for help. And he said it was the most beautiful thing he ever heard when we eventually got there to pick him up because this salesman called 911. They said, I hear you. I'll get help. Imagine that. You're laying and you're, you're, you're hopeless. The cords of death are encompassing you. The torrents of destruction assail you. The cords of Sheol entangle you. The snares of death confront you. And when you cry for help, you know that help it hears you. It's a glorious truth. And so that is the hope of being heard. Rescue is yet to be realized, but hope starts to swell up inside of you. Because someone is saying, I'm coming to get you. And so that's what David's doing. He's distressed, but he's heard. And this is the joy and privilege of prayer. This is what we considered last week as we looked at the Lord's Prayer. We can call out to God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, and we can call on him our father, and he hears us. We can ask him big, bold requests that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. We can also ask him for our own daily bread, our most basic provision and need. And so he's distressed, but he's heard. But the hope of Psalm 18 is it doesn't even end with just being heard by the creator and sustainer of the universe. The hope of Psalm 18 is that God responds. Yahweh not only hears, but responds with justice and mercy to save. And so that will be our second point this morning, which will take up the majority of uh, the verses in the psalm. Yahweh responds with justice and mercy to save. Now, verses 7 through 15, we see right away, are filled with powerful imagery showing how God is concerned with the appeal that David is making. Right? David is calling out to God, and then we get these kind of spine-tingling descriptions of what's about to happen. It says, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Those can be hard words for us to wrestle with and chew on. But we see that God is rightly angry with sin and injustice. And this is because God is perfect and holy. He is set apart. He is completely, absolutely, totally perfect. And so rebellion, sin, is offensive to God. And not in the way that we often think of offense, that we would just think, oh, millennials are offended by everything, that kind of offense. That's a caricature of what I mean by offense. God is rightly offended by sin because it is so counter to his character. It is literally the opposite of who he is. And so God is holy, he is perfect, but we see God is also just. He is a good judge. And so you may be here this morning and you may prefer the thought of a God who goes easy on sin. But that is not just, that is not right. 
A good earthly judge is not one who plays fast and loose with the law or who maybe wakes up one morning and says, ah, I guess I'll go this way today or I guess I'll go this way another day. That's not a good judge. A good judge is one who rightly exercises justice. And I know that doesn't feel comfortable to our ears or to our lives, but that's, that's, what we, that's what we want. When we see injustice in the world, we cry out for justice. And so we want justice. That may not, be, again, be the God that we think we want, but it certainly is the God that we need. His justice and holiness characterizes who he is. And we see David praising God for who he is. And as we look through these verses, specifically verses 7 to 15 here, we see these verses that describe how God is rightly wrathful against sin and injustice. And the imagery here is shockingly similar to imagery that we see throughout the Bible. And specifically uh, to times in David's own life where God delivered him from the hands of the Philistines or, uh, or other prayers and things. But, but what I want to look at this morning is the language that echoes so much of Exodus 19 and 20 at Mount Sinai. Smoke, the mountain, earthquake, darkness language. This is using the exact same phrases and words that we see in Exodus 19 and 20. The images of this cherub and and the covering of darkness point us to the images of the tabernacle that Israel built at Mount Sinai. Hailstones and fire evoke images of Yahweh's means for judgment and for deliverance from the nation of Egypt. And finally, the mention of the sea. Did you see that? In uh, verse, there it is, 15. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. I always think that's funny, the the whole blast of the breath of your nostrils. It's not just like a, a cosmic nose blow. Uh, It is language that evokes justice and judgment and action. And it's an amazing connection that we see to, again, Exodus, the song of Moses. After Yahweh delivered his people from the hand of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Listen to these words, see if they sound familiar. uh, Chapter 15, verse uh, verse 8 of Exodus. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. So what David is doing here is he is drawing in language, direct language, and situations from the history of God's people. He's saying God has been faithful in the past. And and again, those kinds of words to a Jewish audience, that would immediately pull up. Oh, the sea, the foundations of the earth lay bare, the the breath of God's nostrils, that would immediately, they'd be thinking, that's the song of Moses. That's what David's talking about here. And there's other allusions in Exodus 50. We couldn't spend, we wouldn't have enough time to look at every allusion that David points back uh, to other sections. We see later in Exodus 15, it says, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? I mean, that directly echoes Psalm 18, verses 31. For who is God but Yahweh? Who is a rock except our God? There's so much language that, that draws this out. Again, when, when uh, David's writing in Psalm 18, he says in verse 16, right after, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. That's not even just we have to try to draw a thematic connection with Moses that, who was delivered uh, out of the waters when he was put in a basket. But even the name Moses was that he was drawn out in Hebrew. And so there's so many connections that David is making to history that God's people would know. Even one more, this is a big one here, in the superscription that we looked at, we'll backtrack here. What does David describe himself as? Probably just, we didn't even notice. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of Yahweh. You think, yeah, we hear that language all the time. And it's true. There are many times where uh, someone through the Bible is referred to as Yahweh's servant. Uh, You know, you are my servant. Lots of times we can think of those examples. But only three people are given this actual title, who are given this actual name or description. Only three characters, the servant of Yahweh. You can think in your head, who, who might those people be? Well, one is David, here. The other, Moses, and the other, Joshua. Only three people are given this specific title. And so David here refers to himself as the servant of Yahweh. 
And both of the other times, well, there's multiple times where Moses and Joshua are referred to as the servant of Yahweh. But all those times that they were called that were at the end of their life or after they have been alive. It was looking back on their life and saying God has, has been with them forever and they have served the Lord in this way. For Moses, it was leading God's people out of slavery. And Joshua, it was leading God's people into the land that God had promised, the conquest. And David was being God's king for God's people. And we see that this is how this psalm is broken down. This is how this psalm is just filled with this. We see language of David in his own life. It is him singing the song. It is him writing these words. But we see all these allusions to Moses and what Moses has done, this servant of Yahweh. And then this whole second half, when he's talking, and again, troubling strange words when we think about David rising up and, and overcoming his enemies, that's conquest language. And again, so many phrases and things through that that point directly to Joshua. So again, we see this whole picture of these servants of Yahweh that David is referring to and God's deliverance of them. And each of these individuals are shadows of one to come, shadows of a servant, shadows of the perfect rescuer, shadows of the perfect leader, and shadows of the perfect king to come who would make a way for his people to be freed from the entra entrapment of slavery and sin, who would make a way for God's people to live at peace with God, and who would be the perfect king. So each of these people, each of these types point to Jesus, our ultimate savior, who is not disconnected from God's action of justice and power. Because it was Jesus who would eventually come and live a sinless life. Yet he would be the one that would bear the weight of God's just wrath against sin. If this wrathful language is intimidating to you, that's good. It should be. But that wrath does not need to fall on us because it fell completely on Christ. That is the hope of the gospel. Because Jesus came in power, yet humbled himself to the point of the most humiliating death you could possibly imagine. And in that moment, he took on his sinless self. He took on the most rebellious, most disgusting, most vile sin in your life because of his great mercy. And this is why and how we can praise God who is holy and just. Because he is also amazingly and perfectly merciful. That's the hope of the Bible. But the reason we don't like the thought of God who is just and we don't like the thought of justice is because we know deep down that what hangs over us is that judgment. And we know that we can't bear that weight, that we would be crushed under that kind of weight because of our sin. But to misunderstand this is to misunderstand God and to misunderstand the gospel because it is the best news in the world that God who is perfectly just and holy and us who are perfectly unjust and unholy, we can have hope, real hope. Toby read that for us this morning. The first part of Ephesians chapter 2 is pretty dark. We were dead, spiritually dead. But then in verse 4 it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. It was at the cross where truth and justice and mercy all came together in the most perfect picture that offers us actual hope. Jesus died so that we might live. He took our place so that we could be counted as righteous and that we could be at peace with God who is still perfectly holy and just. And that could happen because someone Jesus took our sin on his shoulders. But amazingly, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He demonstrated that God's just wrath against sin had been satisfied perfectly. The debt has been paid if you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Friends, that is sweet relief. We are drowning under the torrents of sin and the gospel is that hand that reaches down, grabs our wrist, 
and pulls us up for that first breath of fresh air. We are trapped in a flooded cave and the gospel is the news that there is a rescuer who when their head pops up is as happy to see you as you are to see them. We are under an impossible to pay for debt against a holy God, but that debt was paid for in full. And to use the poetic language of the Apostle Paul, it says that record of debt that stood against us was canceled and was nailed to the cross. The gospel is that we are saved not because of our righteousness, but again, because of Jesus' love, because of his sacrifice, because of God's great mercy. Again, as Toby reminded us from Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now here, you might be left scratching your head. You might be saying, whoa, 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 I hear you. I believe that we are saved by grace alone. But what was David going on about? Wasn't he appealing to his own righteousness? That's what you thought? That is a good observation. That is a good question to ask. That is probably the trickiest part of our passage this morning. But again, if you were here two weeks ago, Josiah worked through this in Psalm 17 where David appeals to his righteousness. We, we encountered that same challenge. And so we can ask the same question. Was David sinless? Absolutely not. The fact that this psalm is also found almost identically in 2 Samuel should remind us of the horrible sin in David's own life that we also find in 2 Samuel. And we see other psalms where David confesses blatant sin. So what is David going on about here in this section? Well, in this instance, David is likely appealing to his own righteousness in this scenario, right? He's dealing with these enemies, dealing with Saul. Did he sin against them? Well, we see those times where he had the opportunity to kill Saul multiple times, but did he? No. He showed mercy. He spared him. David also makes clear throughout this whole section that even though he's appealing to the cleanness of his hands, the cleanness of his heart, he's saying it's God who does the saving. It is God who does the work. Even though David speaks of his own character in verses 20 through 26, look at the verses that come right before. Verses 16 to 19. It says, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And look at what comes immediately after, verse 27 to 30. For you, God, save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. Yahweh, my God, lightens my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He is a shield to all those who would take refuge in him. And then we see the next section goes on with the same language of how God is the one that's actively at work. Verses 31 to 35. For who is God but Yahweh? Who is uh, a rock except God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. That's what David is appealing to. It's Yahweh who makes him blameless, not him who makes himself blameless. And then that whole next section goes through with that conquest language, which again, I would encourage you to study this week. Just look at the, the, the parallels. Look at the illusions. Look at the images that we see that are so central throughout redemptive history of God saving his people. But it's important to note here that what, what David is saying is that God deserves all the credit. Any blamelessness is a gift from Yahweh. Any victory belongs to Yahweh and all glory belongs to Yahweh. And we see this section continuing to the end again, strengthening those ties to God's past provision and faithfulness. Again, not just in David's life, but throughout redemptive history. The fact that God has been at work at saving his people from the very beginning. He hears the cries of his people and responds with justice and mercy to save. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And it's this that is the amazing hope of Psalm 18. David praises God for his past work in saving his people. He praises God for his present work in delivering David from his circumstances that he's in throughout his life. In the end, he praises God for a future hope. 
And it's that future hope that we need to hang our hat on. It's that future hope that we need to focus on to ask the question, can we sing this song? Is this a song for us? Or is this a, a historical thing that, you know, David could sing this because he experienced all this stuff? Uh, is, this tr- is there any meaning, truth for us as we look at this song? Well, again, as we've already considered, this psalm points directly to the good news of Jesus. And it does it in more ways than one. Look at how David ends in verses 46 through to the end. Yahweh lives. Again, just think of the contrast even there with what came before, the the death that was encompassing. But he's saying, Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Yahweh, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast Love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Remember that quote I said earlier? Psalm 18 opens with David's love for and reliance on Yahweh and closes with Yahweh's deliverance of and love for David. And through this expression of love to David, we see that it isn't only applicable to him. It certainly is applicable to him. David was a real man, a real king, whom God loved and showed that steadfast covenant faithfulness too but we know that david was only a shadow uh, a type of the king to come the promised deliverer who would come and save god's people who would make a way for god's people to be made right completely with him again god's covenant and promise that he made with david was that there there would be a kingdom that would be established forever through david's offspring and that god's steadfast love would not depart from him and we know that this davidic king would not merely be a good king. He would be the king of kings. He would be the Lord of lords. He would be more than a servant of Yahweh like Moses or Joshua who served the Lord faithfully. But he would be God himself. God in the flesh. The ultimate one who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This forever king, this forever kingdom, this forever hope would be realized perfectly in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul does when he quotes from Psalm 18 in Romans chapter 15. He talks about Jesus being the one who would bring hope to the nations uh, that he comments on in uh, Psalm 18 verses 49. It says, for this I will praise you, O Yahweh, among the nations and sing to your name. Paul brings that in to a New Testament context. He brings in that truth that Jesus is the one who would make a way for the nations to be saved. That is the hope of Psalm 18. It's the hope of the gospel. That it isn't reserved for an ethnic group, that it isn't reserved for a geographic location, or for those who can simply get their act together. The hope of the gospel is a hope for all who sin, and that's all of us. This is a hope for you today. And so if you are here and you are not a Christian, maybe you've grown up even in the church, maybe this is Uh, You're not familiar with the church, but if you're not a Christian, this is a call for you today, friend, to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Find refuge in him. Let him be the shield. Let him be your hope, because the grim reality that we all face is the entanglement of sin, the assailment of death that stands over us because of our sin. But the beautiful reality of the gospel is that this place of desperation isn't the end of the story. It doesn't have to be that way. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is that God's word proves true. He is a shield to all those who would take refuge in him. And so no matter what you've done, trust in Christ today. The good news is that you could be seen as blameless because of Jesus and his sacrifice for you. And Christian, for you this morning, this psalm, let it refresh your memory of the glorious gospel that has saved you and is transforming you. Trust in the past work of God. Trust in the goodness of God. Think about that song we sang earlier. Uh, Where are we here? 
the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let that be true for you. Like David starts saying, Yahweh is my strength. That's what we're saying when we sing those words. And then let God's goodness shape the way that you look at the trials of this life. The next verse says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. That's applying exactly what we see David do in Psalm 18. It's saying, I will rest on the unchanging grace that I know through God, both in what he's done in the past, what he's done in my present, what I know he's going to do in the future. That's the hope of the gospel for us this morning. And so let that faith in the goodness of God shape your approach to the trials and storms of life. Know that when you are weary and heavy laden, you can cry out to God in your distress and come again to Jesus and find rest in him. The hope of the gospel is that God has responded in justice and mercy to save. He hears you, he loves you, and he saves you. This is the God that we worship. His way is perfect. His word proves true. And he is a shield for all those who would take refuge in him. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for that amazing truth that we can say your word proves true. You have proven it time and time again. From the very beginning, when humanity fell into sin, you made promises that you would keep to bring a redeemer. And God, you had your servants come and lead your people out of slavery into the land that you've promised under the leadership of those that you ordain. But God, we rest in the unchanging grace we know of the one who would come that those shadows, that those types, that those people pointed to. God, we thank you for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.